0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics the podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge which looks at geopolitical issues in a historical context with me Suzanne Rain and my quite good friend Professor Ali Ansari and today we're joined by an old friend uh, not in age in time <laughs> An old friend, Dr. Charlie Lederman, who is senior lecturer now at King's College London and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. And we're going to be talking about Armenia and Azerbaijan. The reason we've got Charlie on is because Charlie is the author of a wonderful book called Sharing the Burden: The Armenian Question, Humanitarian Intervention, and Anglo-American Visions of Global Order. So that's why we've got Charlie. The specific reason that we're talking about this is this. Event that happened on the 19th, 20th September 2023, when after so long and so much fighting, the Armenian population in Nagorno Karabakh basically was overwhelmed within a day by Azerbaijan. And we now have a situation where approximately 100,000 Armenians have left Nagorno Karabakh, apparently for good. So, what we're going to do today, because geographically, The area is incredibly complicated. The history is really tricky. And who's on whose side anymore and who's helping who has become, I confess, impossible for the layperson, which I consider myself to be, to understand. So Ali and Charlie, I think we're going to start with some deep history, Ali.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it is very complicated, which is why we hope people turn to us to find a, a coherent explanation of what's going on. Although, as you quite rightly say, sometimes these things become immensely complicated. So uh, I'm going to have a go. But before I do so, I just want to make my own welcome back to Charlie, because obviously he's been on before with a previous excellent podcast on uh, Hitler's American Gamble. But now we're moving into the Caucasus. And the Caucasus is an interesting environment and one in which there's a sort of a almost like a trilateral contest between the Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks over sort of influence in the area. And of course, going back into the, the deeper recesses of history. Uh, back to the early 19th century, 18th and early 19th century, of course, this part of the Caucasus, the area that we're dealing with, used to be uh, part of what we would understand as the Iranian or the Persian patrimony. And really until the end of the 19th century, I beg your pardon, until the end of the 18th century, I'll correct myself, it was very firmly held to be part of, of what was then considered to be the sort of the Iranian kingdom, the Persian kingdom.
0: Sorry to interrupt Ali, but was that really, was it acknowledged as such?
1: Yes, absolutely. Russians, Very uh, central. Rev- so. Well, I mean, the Russians didn't acknowledge much, obviously, in terms of territorial uh, boundaries. But really up until, you know, so for instance, even in the mid-18th century, when you had a uh, Russian incursion southwards, you know, when the Persian state regained some of its strength, the Russians were quick to withdraw. I mean, those areas, of Georgia, Armenia, and what is now known as Azerbaijan, I and mean, we have to remember that even the name of the Republic of Azerbaijan is highly contentious as far as the Iranians are concerned. Because it took the name basically of that province of Azerbaijan, which is now in in northwestern Iran, but Georgia and Armenia were basically seen as two sort of Christian principalities that were part of a sort of a uh, at least you know from the the 17th and 18th century you know were seen as part of this Persian patrimony and part of the Safavid state, and then ultimately, when the uh, the 19th century Iranian state was taking shape uh, under the dynasty the Rajas at the end of the 18th century, they also felt that they had a right to those. Uh, Territories, they were theirs by right. But of course, by the end of the 18th century, those Christian principalities were also looking at the emerging power of Russia to be their sort of protector. And so, in the first sort of couple of decades of the 19th century, you see two wars between Russia and Iran one from 1804 to 1813, and a much shorter one from 1826 to 28, which basically saw these territories wrested from Iran. And it was taken as a massive shock. By political leaders in Iran at the time, certainly the Treaty of Turkmen Chai, which settled the debate, so to speak, in 1828, is regularly heralded by Iranians to this day as one of the most humiliating treaties that has been. Opposed. Can I say
0: as well, Ali, that I've noticed that you've brought it up on multiple I occasions? Have,
1: I have, because it, it obviously is very. I take it very personally, as you can might imagine. But it is interesting, and I tell you why it is quite interesting on one level is because it's one of the few times, actually, that the Russians, given the current, uh, as you say, rapprochement between Russia and Iran, it's one of the few times that the Russians actually get it in the neck. I mean, normally they talk about the Americans and the British, as you can imagine. But this is one of the times they say, you know, we're not having... So when they were even discussing the nuclear program with America, you know, people would say, this is a terrible, a terrible treaty or a terrible agreement because it's worse than Turkmen Chai. I mean, this was the litmus test. This was the reference point.
0: So what was in the Treaty of Turkmen Well, what Chai? the Treaty
1: of Turkmen Chai basically uh, did, it confirmed many of the elements of the earlier treaty in 1813. But basically, it severed Georgia, Armenia, and this other territory that acquired the name, I have to say, Azerbaijan quite late, became part of the Russian Empire. And there were various other elements of the treaty, including certain rights that the Russians gained in terms of trade and preferential trade in Iran, the right to establish an embassy, although that didn't start very well. Uh, But they also imposed a very, very heavy indemnity on Iran, uh, something to the tune of 20 million uh, silver rubles. Now, for much of the 19th century, the Iranians were very, how should we say, they felt very bitter about having lost these territories. And of course, it was one of the reasons why the Russians, in order to divert the Iranians away from any attempt to try and regain these territories, uh, diverted them eastwards and said, "You know, if you really want to um, restore Persian greatness, why don't you just go and take Herat instead? Because that's much more Persian." And of course, that brought Iran into m- more confrontation with the British Empire in in India. But I think, in terms of the Iranian imagination, of course, the the view north of the Caucasus, they see the Caucasus as well as parts of Central Asia. Of course, is very much part of this Persian patrimony, and the evidence of this really. And I'll hand over in a minute to Charlie, who'll take the the period at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. But let me just leapfrog over a little bit quickly, because the evidence of this affectation they had comes in the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, where the Iranians make claims at Paris. And among the claims they put down is basically the restoration of these territories. I mean, they basically say these territories are part of the legitimate territorial boundaries of Iran, and uh, you need to give them back. It was a fanciful suggestion, as you might imagine, and the British delegation didn't take it seriously, but they were keen to get a lot of these territories back in, in Central Asia and also in the Caucasus. And it, it emphasizes why they see it so emphatically as part of the whole. And of course, uh, as we'll see later, I think, in this podcast, in 1991, with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was suddenly a, an opportunity for the Iranians to um, exert a little bit of uh, a, li- a little bit more influence in the Caucasus. But before we get to that, I want to Hand over, if I may, to Charlie who can cover some of the more um, uh, the view from the Ottoman Empire, stroke Turkey.
2: Yes, well, thank you so much to both of you for having me. It was a pleasure to be on last time. It was great fun. It was um, you know, re- really rich and stimulating, and, it, and it's already been rich and stimulating today because I've learned so much about the um, the eastern part of Armenia because m- my work really focused on what the Armenians call Western Armenia because really, if you look back. There's this split that occurs around, um, really by 1400, you've got this period where most of this territory that historically belonged to the Armenians, and they had this sort of long history being the sort of, that they sort of proudly identified themselves as the first people to adopt um, Christianity as a state religion. That's right,
1: the the first Christian nation.
2: Exactly, yes, going back to AD 301, then 12 years before the Edict of Toleration by Constantine in the Roman Empire. So it's, it's a long sort of connection Back to Christianity, and they sort of hold resolutely to their faith over the succeeding centuries. But really, by fourteen hundred, what you've seen is this sort of this kingdom has come under the sway, as as Ali mentions, of the Iranians to the east, but also in the west, um, what is today referred to as Eastern Anatolia and, uh, and Transcaucasia, and sort of come under Ottoman control, and that really is an important part of the Armenian heritage because in the Ottoman Empire, they're part of this sort of multi-confessional multi-ethnic polity, but they're very much second class citizens within that state as Christians paying special taxes, but they thrive for quite a, a long period as sort of tenant farmers in a very feudal system. But really it's, it's once the Ottoman Empire starts to decline in the 18th and 19th century, the Armenian position really deteriorates. And what we see is sort of the Ottoman Empire emerges as sort of the sick man of Europe. The Armenian position is, um, is increasingly precarious, where they are discriminated against. They have huge tax burden. They're sort of oppressed within the system. And they ultimately, as there's sort of reforms that go on within the Ottoman Empire, many of the subject minorities of the Ottoman Empire undergo this sort of cultural, political, and spiritual revival and, and adopt forms of nationalism. And the Armenians are quite late in the day to that. But by the end of the 19th century, they do move in that direction. And really, it's um, because it is such a pivotal geostrategic region for sort of the great game between the British and the Russians in East Asia. I mean, obviously, Iran and eastwards, there's an important part of that. But because of the way in which the Ottoman Empire, with the, the sort of the Dardanelles Straits and Constantinople, that whole area around Anatolia becomes critical. And the Armenians are sort of scattered across those provinces. So I think it's important to remember that even though there's sort of a large Armenian population sort of stretching across this sort of crossway of um, of Europe and Asia, in most places they're not really in a full consolidated sort of nation as such because they're intermixed with other populations. Which is the challenge that sort of continues really right up until questions around 1919 and the Paris Peace Conference. So I'm glad that Ali brought that up because I think the questions of self-determination, the questions of the League of Nations and the aftermath of the First World War are so critical to understand the roots of this conflict.
0: Can I ask some basic orientation questions? So the population numbers of Azerbaijan today and Armenia today are strikingly different. So Azerbaijan, I think, is over 10 million population. Armenia's 2.8 2.8 approximately. so much smaller. but mm-hmm. then Charlie, really interestingly, that's sort the of point that you're making I and mean, it's always had and, and it clearly we're going to talk on why now, but it has this really in proportionate terms massive external diaspora so about an estimated 8 million Armenians, which significantly exceeds the number of people who live inside Armenia. And like the the other thing that you'll find as soon as you search on the internet for photos of Armenia is a picture of Mount Ararat, which is of course not even in Armenia. it's just outside in Turkey, but you can see it from Yerevan and I remember because I went to Yerevan a long time ago, and I remember I went to the local museum and they had an exhibition of maps that you know cause they've got these really old maps, haven't they? And it was striking going around and seeing apart from the fact that I couldn't actually work out where anything was because it's all in Armenian script, but all of the maps. Had Armenia at the centre of the world because, and they're really, they're old; they're two thousand years old maps. So there's something fascinating about how this identity is ancient and yet kind of also difficult to pin down. So, Charlie, that's to kind of run up to you explaining what happened at the end of the nineteenth century.
2: Hopefully, yes. No, that's it's it's absolutely. And I just you mentioned Mount Ararat; that's also sort of part of the sort of Armenian identity, the sense to which that Noah's Ark is supposed to have sort of. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, the Mount Ararat is where it's supposed to have sort of take a lamp or after the flood. So it's a very, it's sort of critical to the Armenian national consciousness. But as as you say, the sense to which the Armenians are sort of spread across this geostrategically crucial region. I mean, it, what we start to see at the end of the nineteenth century is a move towards Armenian, well, first sort of self defence within sort of an increasingly illiberal Ottoman Empire. But then particularly after the russo-ottoman war of 1877-1878 where sort of russia invokes its position as the sort of guardians of the empire's orthodox christians to declare war on the ottoman empire but also to um to annex as i, say, as I already mentioned in 1829 they'd annexed the eastern provinces of historic armenia but they also occupy much of ottoman Emp- armenia at the end of that 1877-78 conflict and the armenians sort of they think that after this they're going to have sort of provisions for their protection sort of carved into the new treaty. And that is really sort of their disillusionment sets in there because the Berlin Congress sort of internationalizes the Armenian question, but it's ultimately returned to the Ottoman Empire. And that's really sort of the origins from that point onwards. So a lot of tensions between Armenians and Kurds in in the eastern Anatolian provinces of the Ottoman Empire. Which ultimately culminate in in the massacres of the 1890s, with the Hamidian massacres, where estimated about hundred thousand Armenians are killed in these massacres. And I'd say that that the 1870s is the internationalization of the question, but it sort of falls off the international agenda. From the 1890s onwards, it becomes sort of a humanitarian call celeb across the Western world, this sense of protection for the Armenians as sort of as a Christian population within sort of what is seen as a very sort of retrograde. And um, sort of a decrepit um, Islamic empire, sort of obviously tied to this sort of language of sort of civilization, sort of a vestige of Western Christian civilization within what is seen as a um, as an other empire. And really, what we see coming out of out of this is that there's there's no real intervention for the Armenians in the 1890s. But over the coming years, it will keep on sort of coming up onto the international agenda. And there's a hope. After the sort of Junkirk Revolution of 1908-1909, that there's this will be a new future of secular and particularly constitutional Ottomanism, which ultimately, as we know, collapses with the First World War. And then we see the outbreak of really the great atrocities in Armenian history, the Armenian genocide of 1915. So there's this sort of long-standing sense. The Armenians that they are let down by the outside powers who sort of make promises towards them, going back to the 1870s, then don't actually live up to this, but they always look to the outside powers because they're not necessarily strong enough on their own to secure their own independence and security. And obviously the hopes of this collapse and then the their, their position during the war leads to a huge amount of ethnic cleansing into the deserts of the Middle East, and really a lot of the sort of diaspora sort of stems from this point. Many leave in the 1890s as well, but particularly there's obviously a a large number of Armenians killed. um, The numbers are are still disputed to this day, but most historians would put it around a million. But there's also huge numbers who are cleansed from that territory, who leave the area. But to come back to the story with Azerbaijan is that with the Russian Revolution of 1917, there's a sense to which these states, both within what have been Tsarist Russia and in the Ottoman Empire, will be able to get their independence. And actually, the Armenians and Azerbaijanis, with the Georgians, come together in the last year of the First World War to establish the Transcaucus Republic, with a sense that that will be their sort of, their route to independence. This sort of collaboration collapses, and all are sort of competing and vying with each other for territory coming into the Paris Peace Conference. And the Armenians in particular, going back to the sense that they're a core celeb, they have a lot of outside backers from the Paris Peace Conference. Their sense is, finally, we're going to get our state, we're going to get our protection, and that ultimately leads to disillusionment, which I think is, as I say, a lot of this goes back to 1919-1920, where the First Armenian Republic is defeated, destroyed, and it's crushed between Bolshevik Russia and emerging Turkish nationalism. And those territories that the Western Armenia, those territories which you talked about, Suzanne, are forever sort of lost to any sense of this. I mean, it was always quite a quixotic project because, say, the Armenians stretched across this area, but they were never in a majority other than in certain regions of this. So the idea which they'd hoped for that an outside protector would come in and help them reconstitute their population in one of the League of Nations mandates, and this idea that Armenia, at least as it was envisaged at this time, would stretch. From the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, a huge territory, huge expanse. That was the vision for a mandate. But it became quite quickly just how challenging that would be. So a lot of these questions go back to ideas about self-determination. These multi-ethnic empires that Ali and I talked about previously are falling apart. And the question is, what's going to replace them? What are going to be the new building blocks? And these ideas that Lenin and Woodrow Wilson are pushing of national self-determination, are taken up by many of these peoples, including the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis.
0: Charlie, who had the the grand vision for the Greater Armenia, were there a number of you know charismatic leaders who were sort of leading that national call?
2: Yeah. So at the Paris Peace Conference of 1918, I and mean, to add to the confusion of this, there are two Armenian delegations: one representing the Ottoman Armenians, and one the Russian Armenians. And the Ottoman Armenian leader. Is a figure called Bogos Nubar, and he's part of this diaspora community. And it's the Armenian Republic is the only one that really comes into existence at that time. But there's very little knowledge in the West of what's going on up in the Caucasus. The focus is very much on the Ottoman Empire, and, and particularly as the West are sort of picking apart the Ottoman Empire for different mandates. And really, we're talking about sort of someone with a with a vision of this. There's many in the West, there's many who are seen as spokespeople of this, particularly in Britain. I mean, we're looking at sort of that the rallying of the Armenian cause. Gladstone would sort of famously say during the 1890s, and to serve Armenia is to serve civilization. And as a result, many sort of liberals across the Western world take up the cause of the Armenians. And not least Woodrow Wilson, who looks to Gladstone as a hero. And so Wilson is hoping to get the Americans into a leading role in the world. And when the British and the French uh, and particularly the British in this case, are trying to pull the Americans into a leading role in the Middle East. Their sense is, well, we can appeal to American idealism that they will take on this mandate for what is um, what was the Armenians, that Wilson can draw the boundaries however he wants to. And that a whole range of commissions are sent to the Middle East and to the caucus to have a look at what would this mandate look like. And Wilson is really pushing for this. So in the, in the League of Nations debate, it's one of those things, Sense to sort of fall through the cracks. We tend to think about the debate over the League of Nations, America rejecting membership in the League. What's often forgotten is there's this huge debate over a mandate as well, whether the US will take this on, which goes on even after the League has been rejected. And ultimately, Wilson puts that to Congress in 1920. And they're very clear that this is, this is certainly not something that the Americans want to take on, that their sense is they're being sort of taken advantage of. By the Europeans who are trying to seize all the oil wells and give the Americans this sort of like barren territory, so that's really how it becomes a real sort of. I say you've got charismatic Armenian leaders, and there's one major figure in, in the US called Bahan Kardashian. I've, I've been fascinated to find out any if, if, if he's any um, access <laughs> um, to of, of of the Kardashians um, themselves. Um, yeah. I don't know about that, but he he's the sort of the major spokesperson in the US for the Armenian communities. But it's something where the Armenians are past the debate, but decisions again are being taken for their future, not by them. Um, it's the the debate is going on in the West, but even while this debate's going on in the West, actually reality on the ground is is uh, and so this is a lot of a real echo of today of uh, the discussions and debates in the West about what's going to happen with, for the Armenian's future, but actually their future is being decided by. The Russians and by the Turks and by the Azerbaijanis, and that's the case even in
1: 1919, 1920 as well. So, those Armenians in the Ottoman Empire in basically Eastern Anatolia, when are they trying to sort of agitate for a sort of a, as you would say, look like a Western Armenian state? I mean, is this sort of like in the later part of the 19th century, as a result of some of the reforms of Abdul Hamid and the others? Are they trying to agitate for something separatist or an autonomous? section or what, what are they actually trying to identify there?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think initially what they want is just protection. They want protection in the 1890s. But I think what you see is out of those massacres, because the uh, the populations that are sort of pushing for nationhood are quite small and they're, they're not widely popular until the massacres of the mid 1890s. And at that right. point, there's a sense yeah. that Armenians- That's
1: crystallizes it. it. That's what crystallizes it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But by the time of the peace conference, the sense is that you're going to have an Armenian homeland, almost the, the, the analogy is often drawn with the Jewish homeland. You don't have a majority in much of this territory. And there's certain parts of the territory of historic Armenia where the Armenians are in majority, but certainly not
1: throughout it. Well, it would and have like clashed you, very heavily with the uh, greater Kurdistan, wouldn't it? I well, mean, that, exactly. Yeah. I mean, at that was, that time, because yeah. they were also claiming all sorts of territories. To but the but they don't really have any
2: champions at the Paris yeah. Peace Conference. Um, yeah. And so that, I think that's the thing is that this is obviously seen in a very Western centric perspective, and the Armenians are sort of championed in the West as a Christian population. There's very little discussion of the Kurds, but there's also a sense to which the map is so in, intertwined. And so their sense is that ultimately, in order to create sort of a homogenous Armenian state, you have to take on control of almost this whole region across what is the Caucasus and Anatolia and sort of carve out these individual states, which is the vision which is being pushed in 1919. But ultimately, I say it's a very quixotic vision. And I think that the possibility that the Americans would ever have come in in 1919. I think is is an extremely rare... Yeah, I
1: don't think we're going to pile a decent Yeah, Yeah, um,
2: even still to this day in 1990, I mean, you, you'll see a lot of sort of a Armenian stamps with pictures of Woodrow Wilson sort of pointing mm. to Western um, Armenians, the Anatolian provinces, the sense to which there's certain sort of... Um, Sort of romantic aspirations, should we say, to a larger. I
1: think Woodrow Woodrow Wilson, I think, has a lot to answer for, doesn't he, Charlie? I mean, he does. I, I think the challenge that I think we have
2: here with, I mean, we said we could probably do a whole, uh, a whole, I mean, with Margaret Millen and people like that. Yes, whether, the, um, whether, yes. whether many of the problems of the world go back to the peace. I, I would say, in regard to self determination, Wilson himself is sort of responding to something that's in the ether. I mean, it's, I don't think Wilson doesn't invent national self determination. And there's a sense to which there, all of these sort of nations are emerging, but neither he nor many in the West realize just quite how many nations there were. It's sort of it's, we see something similar once the Soviet Union collapses in the yeah. late 1980s. There's sort of this sense to which all these um, long-forgotten peoples are starting to re-emerge, and the clash over Nagorno-Karabakh is sort of seen as a throwback to an earlier era where these groups that the West had sort of forgotten almost, for for many had forgotten that these were independent nation-states at any point because they'd sort of been consolidated within Tsarist Russia. So there's a sense to which once the Soviet Union is starting to come apart, this conflict sort of re-emerges, the tensions between them re-emerge that had been sort of evident in the late 19th and early
1: 20th century. So before we get on to the sort of more contemporary side, I I thought I'd just sort of also Comment a little bit about also the Armenians in Iran because quite a few actually went over to Iran after the mm-hmm. genocide. So a lot of Armenians in Iran. There's a sizable minority in Iran, of course, and they have their own deputy and this sort of thing, and in the parliament. And many of the Armenians in Iran, of course, all seem to claim that they came over with Shahbus in the 17th century, but that's actually probably not true. Quite a few of them came over in 1915. And there's a wonderful, um, I think it's probably an apocryphal story, but it's worth retelling because I oh. always enjoyed this one. That after the Second World War. Stalin had apparently encouraged all the Armenians in the diaspora to return home. And this message went out to the Armenians in Iran that they should come back. And a couple of them said, should we go? And they said, well, it's it's going to be quite difficult. They said, well, two of us will go and we'll see what it's like in the Soviet Republic, obviously. And we'll send a photo back. And if we're standing up, come. And if we're sitting on a chair, don't. You know, the situation is not great. And apparently, photos were sent back with people lying on the ground. You know. <laughs> so, such horror that they said, "Don't come back! Don't come back to Armenia." So, I mean, there was this um, interesting relationship. Anyway, I mean, I think the the role of the Armenians in Iran has been quite influential, actually, over the twentieth century in terms of the diaspora. They've been quite an influential diaspora. And of course, as you say, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, all sorts of dynamics come back to the fore. And these peoples that had been living, I think, in a degree of harmony, obviously, uh, probably enforced harmony uh, for this period. Suddenly that becomes released. I should also say, I mean, just as as another aside, of course, on this point of Azerbaijan, because let's not forget the Azeris here, the Iranians objected very vehemently to the adoption of the name Azerbaijan in the aftermath of the Great War. And they far preferred it to be called something, as you've suggested, you know, the Trans-Caspian or something, or the uh, Trans-Caucasus or something. And they objected to it for the very reason, of course, that they said that the minute you call this territory Azerbaijan, there will be irredentist claims against what even the current government in Barker calls Southern Azerbaijan. So in a sense, the adoption of that name gave the Republic of Azerbaijan the excuse it needed to sort of cast uh, leery eyes at the Iranian province in the Northwest. And I raise this simply also to provide a bit of background to the current frictions and tensions that exist between, you know, Iran and the Caucasus, but also with Russia and Turkey as other players. And I think what was very interesting to me in the 1990s, as these old frictions came back to the surface and you had these initial conflicts over, over Nagorno-Karabakh, and let's not forget, of course, the um, Azerbaijani enclave of Nahchivan, which is basically also cut off from uh, Azerbaijan, but borders Iran, and that at that stage in the 1990s, partly as a consequence of the enormous diaspora. When I say enormous, I mean, it, we're talking three, 400,000, but it was very influential in Iran. Partly as a consequence of this, revolutionary Iran, revolutionary and Shia Iran, as people always pointed out, actually sided with Christian Armenia in its struggle with Shia Azerbaijan. And the reason was, as it was being explained at the time, was because neither Azerbaijan or Armenia played the sort of sectarian card but they did play the ethnic card. And the Armenians argued very forcefully that they were sort of like, you know, Christian Iranians, essentially. Whereas the Azeris argued very forcefully that they were Turks. And of course, sided with, you know, got Turkish support. And the Iranians became very offended at this and therefore put all their weight behind the Armenians. And I think that partly explains why the Armenians were able to resist the encroachments of the Azeris in the beginning over over this sort of uh, section of Nagorno-Karabakh, but it also was one of the places, as Suzanne and I have discussed on other podcasts, where uh, Iran and Russia saw eye to eye too, because both Iran and Russia supported Armenia effectively against the Azeris at this, in this period, which has now, it seems to be, it seems to
0: have changed. Yes. So Ali, let's bring us up to the present day. And I'm just going to introduce essentially the two political characters, uh, the prime minister of Armenia, who was elected in May 2018, Nicole Pashinyan. I hope I'm pronouncing that rightly. Correct me if I'm not. And then on the Azeri side, President Ilham Aliyev, whose father became president in 1993, and he took over when his father died in 2003. So slightly different stories about democratic progress in Azerbaijan and Armenia. What's clear to me in my Small way is that the relationship between Azerbaijan and Turkey remains very close. Um, so, for example, on September the 25th this year, so just a few days after Azerbaijan moved into Nagorno Karabakh, President Aliyev met Erdogan, Turkish president, in Nakhchivan. So, Nachivan for our listener is, I mean, it, it, you need to get a map out really, but basically, the problem with Nakhchivan for the Armenians is that it's a Azeri enclave between Turkey, Iran, and Armenia. And the long held argument has been that Azerbaijan needs a land corridor to get to Nakhchivan, which would go essentially along through the bottom of Armenia. And that's obviously resisted by Armenia for obvious reasons. But you've had Aliyev. Threatening, for example, in 2021, to create a corridor, you know, a contiguous land bridge between close allies, Turkey and Azerbaijan, and deprive Armenia of a land border with Iran. And then he said, whether Armenia likes it or not. So there's been consistently sort of quite bellicose language about that. And then I think what's also happened, Ali, recently, this is just such a muddle and difficult to understand, is that Now, the Azerbaijani Deputy Prime Minister has been to Iran to open a road with the Iranian Minister of Roads and Urban Development, which is going to be road bridge border and customs infrastructure between Azerbaijan and Iran, which will go to Nakhchivan, I think. So in some way, that will go through. So my question is, uh, I've got two questions for somebody. (laughs) One is, should we be really worried about what Azerbaijan is going to try and do to get a land, a contiguous land bridge to Nakhchivan, which sits essentially between Armenia and Turkey? And secondly, who's on whose side? Because Russia was on Armenia's side, but doesn't appear to be anymore. And it's not entirely clear why it might be something to do with the way that the Armenian prime minister has tried to distance himself from Russia. It might be something to do with the fact that Russia actually now needs Azerbaijan more for different reasons. We know where the Turks stand. I don't really know where the Iranians stand anymore on this, so they're my questions. Who wants to go first
2: I think I think also where the Americans stand I think is also a complex because <laughs> there's, there's a big debate in in the u s over well, where, where support should be. but i'll let Ali uh, um, I mean, definitely. I think
1: i i mean i'll just i I can't answer all those questions suzanne I mean those some you of those no I mean some of those will have to go to Charlie, I'm afraid I mean this is but uh what I will say is that I think one should always view some of these uh, transport infrastructure claims uh made about you know Iran Azerbaijan and others with with a large pinch of salt, I have to say it is possible. Yeah, but you that can't treat
0: the Nakhchivan claim. The land bridge claim, with a pinch of salt. No,
1: but you no, you can't. You don't can't necessarily uh, object to the claim. The question is, is what they're going to do about it in practice? Because very often there have been disagreements. You know, the, this whole Silk Road operation that was meant to connect, you know, from China all the way up to St. Petersburg, and it was meant to go via Iran and Azerbaijan, has been held up for I think two decades because the Azerbaijanis and the Iranians can't agree on uh, certain border regulations between their two countries. So it's been blocked. Now, this may be changing. I mean, that's what the interesting thing is, is because of the dynamics of the Ukraine war and other things, things may be changing. And uh, as I said, I always would take the actual practicalities with a little pinch of salt, but it's quite clear, certainly from the way I've seen it, that this sort of move into Nagorno-Karabakh and the speed with which this was done. Yes, I can see Charlie's hand. Charlie worry.
0: wants to say something.
1: Oh, no, but let Ali speak first. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming in in a minute. He's coming in a I minute. Mean, because I'm just about to wrap up anyway. The, uh, the speed with which Nagorno-Karabakh was, was basically seized would seem to suggest that certainly both the Iranians and the Russians have withdrawn their support or their active support from Armenia. I mean, that for me would indicate that something has shifted. Charlie.
2: Yes, I'm probably more concerned about MacShivan. I think what we've seen when we go back to the sort of the clash over Nagorno Karabakh and the the territory around it in the sort of late 80s and early 90s, there's obviously a lot of uh, it's it's really a tragedy on both sides with with these huge amounts of ethnic cleansing and particularly uh, the the Azerbaijanis have got a a real gripe um, there, which for the most part is within international law the fact that there's a sense to which they had sovereignty over these territories and the international community never end up recognising the Armenian claim over them. But what we saw, I think, in um, 2020, it was sort of a reclaiming of many of those territories. So what we've seen in recent weeks is the Azerbaijanis have pushed much further than anything that we saw in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think this is part of a really worrying trend that's going on within Azerbaijan. um, The sense to which Armenia itself is being described as Western Azerbaijan. That the Aliyev has much larger ambitions. So I think we can't sort of I, I don't think we can take his claims to Nakshiban and even to parts of Armenia itself with a pinch of salt anymore. I think it's very clear that the ambition is there. I think this is no longer a frozen conflict, clearly. This is something which I think is potentially part of a, a broader sort of collapse of order. In Eurasia, um, across the area that um, Zbigniew Brzezinski in the '90s described as sort of the grand chessboard, I mean, it's. I think we're seeing so many of these pieces come apart at the moment, and I think there is some confusion in the West as to how best to respond to this, because I think for some time there was there was a sense. um, John Bolton, the um, uh, national security advisor under Donald Trump very much saw the possibility of using Azerbaijan against Iran. Um, It's not clear whether the Biden administration would be willing to continue that position. But there's a strange irony where it could be the case that Armenia is looking increasingly to the West and to Iran as their protectors against Russia and Turkey. And If you think the fact the Armenians have ratified the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, That would mean that they would have to arrest Vladimir Putin if he came to Armenia because of the investigation into him over the Ukraine war. Well, if Putin can no longer even come to Armenia, what future is there for Armenia-Russian relations? But then where do Armenia look next? And that's why I think, as I said, there's a lot of echoes going back to 1919-1920, where the Armenians again are facing the possibility of being squeezed between the Russians and the Turks, and again are looking... To the West, and now, as I say, to Iran as well as potential protectors. But whether that will actually lead to anything intangible forms is very, very unclear.
0: So, the question who's Armenia's friends and who who in European or America is going to do anything about this? And it seems that the country which is really stepping up at the moment is France. And as you said, they have very strong diplomatic ties. They have a very large Armenian diaspora in France. And in 2001, Paris was among the first Western capitals which recognized the Armenian genocide two decades before the United States Mm. did. And I think what's happened so far, so French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna has visited Yerevan on the 3rd of October, and she said that France has given consent to sign a future contract with Armenia to enable the provision of military equipment up to Armenia so that Armenia can ensure its defence. And then she's refused to give further information about it. But she's also asked the EU's chief diplomat, Joseph Berrell, to expand the EU mission in the region and proposed including Armenia in the EU peace mechanism, similar to what they've done in, in Moldova. So I think that's all really interesting because that is France trying to say we see how aliyev is maneuvering particularly on nachivan and we can't do nothing so let's you know let's try and do a little bit of forward defense here and then the other thing that happened on the 5th of october in granada in spain was the meeting of the epc european political community which had been intended to broker a meeting or mediate a meeting between armenian prime minister Nicole Pashinyan, and the Aziri president, Aliyev. And Aliyev pulled out of that, uh, which was unfortunate, but he basically accused France of, you know, gross bad faith. And that's right. He said decision to send military aid to Armenia could renew violent hostilities in the Caucasus and basically refused to come. But that mediation would have been France, Germany, and the European Council, which is Charles Michel, so that's quite an interesting move, a profoundly European move, to try and just shore up support for Armenia, which otherwise doesn't really have friends in the region. Would you say that's right?
2: That's right, although the one other actor that I wanted to mention, or I think which I think is very interesting with regard to the position on Armenia is India which has increasingly moved into a position of supplying rocket launchers, anti-tank munitions, ammunition to Armenia, which is sort of the first export of a number of these sort of these rocket launchers, these multi-barrel rocket launchers. And you might be asking, well, why is India getting involved in this conflict? in the Caucasus, and it's a very complex sort of position, I mean, part of it is sort of
1: Exactly what I was going to ask you, actually.
2: Well, yeah, yes, well, part of it's the Armenian endorsement of the Indian position on Kashmir, ah. but also sort of support for a permanent seat in the Security Council, Azerbaijan's proximity to Pakistan and close to the So the, the, the geopolitics is extremely complicated. But one of the things I wanted to say just on the European element of this, and just in this wider sense of global order in general... Is the sense to which, as Henry Kissinger would have said, the linkage between all of these different conflicts, and particularly in terms of the um, supply chain of weapons, because increasingly what the United States is seeing is the possibility of, of needing, and the Europeans with them, the need to sort of arm a whole range of actors, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's Israel, with a whole range of conflicts going on at the same time. The possibility that Armenia, is going to be at the front of the queue when it comes to these um, weapon supplies is very very slim so ultimately the question is well, where are they going to look to so as a result i mean the french have taken a strong stance on this and it sort of ties in perhaps with a sort of a, a more independent position but at the same time when it becomes the case that these suppliers are sort of um that there's a, there's a thinness in in terms of the amounts of supplies well I think there's a strong chance that the Armenians will be ones who will lose out between this. And and at the the same time, they're extremely concerned about the possibility of an imminent invasion from Azerbaijan over the coming weeks. So we could really see a sort of a multi crisis um, cascading series of conflicts across this belt of of Eurasia, or what um, Alfred Mackinder described as sort of the heartland of Eurasia.
1: Well that's the worrying thing, isn't it, is how these conflicts are sort of merging into each other in a in a slightly worrying way. And, exactly. And I think I think at first it might seem that
2: these conflicts are sort of quite detached from each other. Yeah. You, that you can look at that sort of the caucus as being sort of disconnected and that while well, our attention is on what's going on in Eastern Europe or in the Middle East or in East Asia. But the fact is that across these different conflicts, actors are sort of jockeying for position. And there's a real sense to which the sort of broader geopolitical competition that the clash between Armenia and Azerbaijan is is very much interlinked with this. And um, as you say, Ali, I mean, the Iranian position is going to be striking to watch and, um, and how that relates to their position with Russia, I think, is the major question that we need to think through.
0: Charlie, thank you so much. We're going to have to draw to a close because we've run out of time. But I would just observe that I'm really sure you're right, Charlie, because I think it won't have escaped Aliyev's notice that no one's looking. And if he wanted a land corridor to Natchevan, he might probably pick now to take it. And when you said the Caucasus have always seemed quite disconnected, I just thought back to those maps which had Armenia at the center of the world. And I thought it's disconnected, but in some way it's also still the center of the world. So hopefully that will keep Ali happy. Uh, (laughs) thank you charlie thank you so much for joining us i think we've well we've learned a huge amount i think we've still got more to learn so what this has done hopefully is whet our listeners appetite for more information so thank you it's goodbye from me and bye from me